0: If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash Dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up, and that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer, as a community-powered podcast, we cannot keep our episodes going and alive without more direct support from our listeners. And in this critical time, independent media shining a light on often sidelined perspectives and topics is more important than ever. So if you're learning from us and are moved by our conversations, you can reciprocate a gift of any amount at greendreamer.com/support.
1: One of the most powerful untapped resources is spirituality. And spirituality is something that, particularly spirituality from Black and indigenous communities all over the world has been so denigrated and so viciously attacked that many, many people have been, are unaware of of its transformative potential.
0: Today we're revisiting our conversation with Dr. Chelsea McHale Frazier, a Black feminist eco-critic who writes, researches, and teaches at the intersection of Black feminist theory and environmental thought. As founder and chief creative officer at Ask and Amazon, she designs educational tools, curates community gatherings, gives lectures, and offers consulting services that serve Black women as fuel for sustainable futures.
1: So, I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Minneapolis is a place. I don't know if you've heard the term Minnesota nice, but you know, <laughs> it's a place that is kind of uh, <laughs> very liberal in its political orientation and that even can show up in the way that people relate to each other interpersonally. But as a young, black girl. For me, a lot of the time, Minnesota nice was pretty much just passive aggressiveness. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I had to get really good, really young at figuring out what wasn't being said, because it was like talking to people and feeling a certain amount of hostility, but it's coming through a smile, you know? And so that can be really confusing when you're younger. And I didn't really have the language to explain my emotions and thoughts and reactions to this like political and cultural climate that I grew up in until I started my undergraduate degree at Barnard College in New York. And it was there that I began to delve into black feminist study. And as I sort of began to understand, oh, here's sort of some larger societal and cultural patterns that point to the ways that black women and black girls are often treated I was like, okay. <laughs> now I can make a little bit more sense of what what has been going on and I didn't I don't think that I realized that my interest in black feminist study was was going to end up being so personal. I think I was I kind of on a surface level was like, oh, this happens to be a field that seems most relevant to my life. And then upon further reflection, I was like, oh, this is a field instead of logics and and language that has helped me make sense of how my life relates to this larger world that I grew up in and I'm currently participating in. So that's how I got started. And on an even more pragmatic level, women's studies was the first class at Barnard that I got an A minus in, <laughs> which was the highest grade I got at the time. Um, I think I was like a sophomore. And the most interesting book that I had read thus far was Angela Davis's autobiography. So I was like, OK, I seem to be the most interested in performing the best in this class. I'm going to go with this. Mm.
0: <laughs> so the feud of environmentalism is largely dominated historically and still today by white men who yeah. own land or at least aren't low income. So yeah. my question is whether this is the result of our institutionalized injustice just having sidelined and marginalized more black indigenous and people of color, as well as low income folks, or whether it's just a matter of how people with different identities and backgrounds may have discussed and viewed environmental issues through different lenses. So like racism, sexism, classism, or public health. Well,
1: okay. Actually it's both. And it depends on, it depends on how you, how you want to look at that question. For example, If you're talking about within like environmental studies in a purely academic way, a lot of it has to do, I would say it was definitely the latter, more so than the former, but it still is both. And the reason why I say that is because Black feminist literature and or Black women's literature has always privileged and understood and articulated the relationship between subjectivity and the environment and how race, gender, and class mediate that relationship between subjectivity and the environment. Now, even though black feminist literature and black women's literature did that, it didn't always announce itself as environmentalism or ecologically centered. It didn't announce itself that way, but it didn't, It doesn't mean that it wasn't there. When it comes to the way that information is organized in the academy and in general, most of the time, canon building or even field building and, and, and discourse creating, is a matter of phrasing, right? And phrasing can also be intensely political and contentious. So I do think that there has been implicit and explicit ways that Black people have been excluded from a larger participation in the environmental movement or in ecology, as sort of a political orientation. However, it doesn't mean that Basically, black people, black women, and even black feminist studies hasn't been authoring their own understanding of ways of being in the world and ways of articulating relationship between different entities.
0: So today you identify as a black feminist eco-critic. And I feel like many of our listeners may not be familiar with the field of eco-criticism. So can you share what this is all about and how it helps us to make sense of ourselves and our evolving relationships to the environment?
1: So landing on thinking about myself as a Black feminist eco critic was kind of a years long process in the making. I knew that Black feminism was again sort of like where Black feminism is where I find my my intellectual home, and I again shared the a lot of the same concerns as many of my fellow colleagues who are eco critics did, but didn't see myself or my work or my other intellectual commitments reflected there. So I was basically trying to think how I landed on being a black feminist ecocritic and black feminist ecocriticism was me carving out an alternative way to conceptualize many of the concerns that I saw in the broader fields of ecocriticism. So it wasn't necessarily an attempt to just to be clear, like to diversify ecocriticism or to you know, diversify the environmental humanities or to include myself. In that conversation necessarily, although those have been many of the um, kind of byproducts of that, and I'm grateful for that because I again do appreciate building community, intellectual and otherwise, with a lot of those folks. But what it was an attempt to do was really think about what it meant to acknowledge again, um, to go back to your to your previous question, the logics and understandings of ways of being in the world and ways of being in a relationship to the environment that were rooted specifically in black feminism. And because I didn't ha- I didn't see too many other people around or really anyone around me who articulated the concerns in that way, I needed some language to make sense of myself so I didn't st- feel like I was constantly jumping back and forth between all of these different kind of like identities and lines of thought. I needed to figure out where my place was. And a lot of people mistakenly refer to me as a black ecofeminist mm. and You know, ecofeminism is related to the work that I do, but ecofeminism is not is not rooted in black feminism. In fact, unfortunately, ecofeminism has suffered from a lot of the same things that eco-criticism and the broader environmental movement has suffered from, which is a lot of homogeneity and (laughs) homogen. You know what I'm trying to say. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there was only one kind of person represented in those conversations, Mm -hmm. and so black feminist ecology is. A set of principles, a reading practice, a framework that is about under that is rooted in in Black feminism specifically, and that's part of the reason why Black feminist eco critic fits so well. Once I finally landed there,
0: right. So in applying your Black feminist perspective to eco-criticism, I know you actively write against what's called colonial earth ethics. How is this at odds with environmental justice? And yet, how has it been reflected in the various environmental solutions promoted and implemented today? Oh, my goodness. I mean, pretty much in every way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Colonial earth ethics are slippery,
1: right? And that they show up, again, in our best sort of... Or our most celebrated rather forms of resistance to ecological violence. So by that, I mean that if we're overly focused on reform, it keeps us from being able to see that, as my articulations of colonial earth ethics point to, a lot of these issues that we're suffering from can't be reformed. they need to be abolished, reworked, repurposed, mm. but they can't simply be reformed and so. Colonial earth ethics describes basically a set of practices that perpetuate ecological harm. And it's rooted in a functionally relationship with the environment where it's it's exploitative, right? Theft, whether legal or illegal, is a key component of colonial earth ethics. Physical and cultural dispossession of particular peoples is a feature of colonial earth ethics. It's functionally an understanding of the world that that perpetuates an idea of disconnection from the environment and a disconnection that then absolves practic- the practitioner, knowingly or unknowingly, from the responsibility to the environment.
0: I was just talking to the director of TerraLingua, which is a nonprofit focused on protecting and enriching biocultural diversity, which includes biodiversity, cultural diversity, and linguistics diversity, and I had a major aha moment when she talked about how the major political frameworks that we understand today from socialism to capitalism, communism to fascism, all of these political frameworks across the spectrum share in their view of nature being resources for human use. So none of these really go back to the roots of addressing our view of separation from the environment. Yeah.
1: yeah, and that and the view of the separation from the environment is kind of the condition that sets the stage for a colonial earth ethic to to happen. And to be even more specific, when I when I say colonial earth ethic, what I'm describing is a set of practices, value systems, and ways of being that justify or facilitate taking action while completely ignorant about local ecosystems. And part of that is ignoring or just not being aware of the connection between the people in that environment, the animals in that environment, the, anything that comprises that environment, just, understand, just misunderstanding that relationship, right? And also just a willingness to enact violence, when you understand yourself to be a part of an environment or you understand your connection to things and you understand that anything that you put out is going to come back to you, you're a lot slower to just, mm. <laughs> to just outright violate the people and things around you because you know ultimately that you're violating yourself and that's what you want to avoid, right? right. Um, that's just sort of again, just very basic. It's not really even that's not even so much about morality, right? It's just kind of a pragmatic thing. So I think that that disconnection that or that connection that people just simply can't see, that connection that really a colonial earth ethic obscures is part of what we need to be restoring.
0: Mm. I also wonder if we're stuck where we are today because we exist in a system locked into a human construct. So for example, things yeah. like nation states and these border lines that we drew and uh, the maps created through colonialism as well. I'm wondering if you can speak more to this.
1: The way that we organize the world right now and sort of everything that we're complicit in is really about... Benefiting and funneling resources to one group of people, or at the very least, to uphold a set of practices that privileges one way of being in the world. One of the things that I always think about is the fact that our current ecological situation can often be boiled down to the fact that we have a very delimited notion of the human subject. And to be clear, like that's a lot of that's a lot of societal problems that we have that can that come back to. The fact that we have a very delimited notion of what a human subject is. And I take my cues there from um, Sylvia Winter, who really points out that there are so many problems, so many problems that we're struggling with, including including the unequal distribution of resources that come down to the fact that functionally, if you're not a white man (laughs) Mm. interested in perpetuating capitalism that your very being is at risk, and that everything on the earth is kind of right now funneled towards supporting that way of being and we and privileging that way of being. And that's where some of the imbalance comes from as well.
0: My guess would be no to this question. But do you think it's possible to achieve environmental justice by working inside of this colonialism rooted system itself? Or, or else how much of it do we need to dismantle and undo in order to get there? Because things that we exist in today and accepted truths like nation-state borders, private land ownership, placing monetary value on everything to make them yeah. fit for the marketplace, but that have led to so many otherwise meaningful, invaluable, and enriching things becoming transactional or undervalued. I feel like these are things that have been limiting what environmentalists can do to regenerate true abundance for people and our planet.
1: The simple answer is no. But when it comes to thinking, when it comes to really sitting with the exercise of world building, you have to consider what your alternatives are and you have to think about untapped resources, right? One of the most powerful untapped resources is spirituality and spirituality is something that particularly spirituality from in black and indigenous communities all over the world has been so denigrated and so viciously attacked that many many people have been are, are unaware of its of its transformative potential when i'm thinking about alternatives I'm interested in moving away from a colonial earth ethic and thinking about the ways that black feminist ecology and spirituality is a key component of black feminist ecology can really open doors for something new, right? Not necessarily in sort of I think what another difference that I would say black feminist ecology has from environmental, from traditional environmentalism is, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric around quote, saving the environment. Mm. And even that is is kind of rooted in a particular um, religious philosophical doctrine that that thinks that saving is the is possible and necessary is in our relationship with the environment. But really, we need to understand how to be in community with our environments. And spirituality offers a metric for doing so that is not so hierarchical. Right or at the very least understands the hierarchy as humans not being on the top, because we're not.
0: (laughs) Right, for sure. Yeah. With all this said, a lot of colonial Earth ethics have become deeply embedded in our culture and even in the field of conservation. So I'm wondering what you had to personally unlearn about your own identity or about what the dominant culture has indoctrinated you with in order to fine-tune the questions and solutions you really wanted to explore. Yeah, um I had to unlearn the shame that comes with being a budding quote
1: environmentalist. And by that I mean that I think that a lot of environmentalists use scared and shaming tactics in order to sort of alert people to the urgency of our ecological situation. And and that is also another way that race and gender policing happens in within environmental discourse and in environmental um community or environmentalist communities. And so by that, I mean, you know, there was kind of this knee jerk reaction, like, oh my God, I didn't recycle this thing. Or, oh my goodness, I, um, I used a straw and I didn't use a reusable straw, or I'm, I'm not using the right, I'm not using the right ba- reusable bag at the <laughs> grocery store. You know, it's just this kind of like this, this knee jerk kind of reaction. And I had to sit down and think about like, okay, if I'm not doing these things, Does it signal that I care less about my environment? Number one, I had to start there. Then I had to move into, okay, let me really explore all of these things that I have been taught, make me a quote, good environmentalist, Mm -hmm. right? And to really just do my own personal research and think about how effective they were at helping us to quote, save the environment, right? And then I started to really see like, hold on a second. A lot of recycling facilities are in, um, a lot of plants are in low income communities of color. So if I'm recycling, what am I actually saving? Because it seems like the communities that most look like me or that are most aligned with many of the communities that I grew up in are being harmed by this particular practice that is supposed to be the most celebrated of our environmental practices, right? Mm. And that, and so as I sort of started to um, nuance my perspective through my research about, the implications, like the literal, like day to day life or death implications of some of these of some of these practices, it really changed what I valued in terms of what I thought was going to help me transform into just a person or, you know, that that was in deeper relationship with my environment. But also as an educator and as a writer, what was going to help other people to transform their relationships with their environments too. And A lot of these sort of um, kind of mainstream things that were fed just were deeply insufficient practices that I knew that I needed to unlearn.
0: Right. So I guess this also points to the importance of going beyond seeing, quote unquote, sustainability as individualistic pursuits to seeing it more so as a collective goal that requires uh, systemic, spiritual, institutional shifts.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And don't get me wrong. Like there's choices that we can make within our daily lives that, that affect a larger, a larger sort of supply and demand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> However, to your point, a lot of these values and ethics are, are community driven, right. And are, and are policy driven. And so, I mean, I could there's, and there's just no, if I made every single dis- every single quote, right decision on my own, it would still do it wouldn't be enough to disrupt these interrelated systems that are rooted in resource extraction right and and while we're talking about this i also want to point out that i hear a lot of people a lot of environmentalists and people who are working in environmental discourse say we need to care for the environment because these are resources that are finite. They use the word finite, right? Mm. There's all of it. It's this, it's this idea that our resources are scarce. And I want to be very clear when we are in harmonial relationship with physical resources, right? We're We're. we are creatures of the earth, everyone, to my knowledge, there are no extraterrestrials on this planet, but (laughs) everyone, everyone and everything that is here. It's from here, which means that when we are in harmonial relationship with with the place that we're from, our resources are actually boundless and abundant, mm-hmm. right? But because everything, again, on a policy level, on a cultural level, is sort of geared toward this understanding that we only have so much, it then create it then creates a relationship where extraction is the norm, right? And and then extraction becomes justified that is something so much larger. And you can't, you can't mitigate that, you know, um, in your kitchen, you know, worrying about whether or not you're, you're,
0: <laughs> right.
1: your choice to recycle or not was, was the right one. I had a dear mentor reach out to me recently and say, Hey, Chelsea, I'm trying to really do better about my relationship with the environment. What should I do? Should I start recycling? Should I start? They're just like, what do I do? You know? And I'm like, Let's not think about recycling so much, and let's not think about these kinds of things. I want you to go outside and sit next to a tree, <laughs> like really sit down and think about how you can connect with that tree. It doesn't have to be a tree. It could, be, you know, it could be it could be it could be any element of nature that you that brings you joy. And everyone has that. Everybody has that. And so I was, t- I was just telling her, like, if you're able this week just go sit down next to a tree and listen, just listen. And that is part of how you can actually begin to cultivate a relationship with the environment that is not based on what are these, that is not based on, you know, work and and saviorhood. You know, what can I do? What is another task that I need to add to my to-do list in order to save something outside of myself, as opposed to sitting down and meditating on your relationship with our environment, right? Your very home, which ultimately is about a relationship with yourself.
0: So I mean, the reality is often a manifestation of our worldviews and our perspectives and our inner beings and how we see this world. So even though it might sound too simple to be true, I do feel like a lot of this goes to our inner relationship and our independent relationships to the environment. And I also had been thinking a lot about how scarcity is a human construct because a lot of times if we supported degraded lands to restore their own regenerative capacities to heal, they are able to create recreate abundance. Absolutely. But I also wonder how much of this scarcity narrative has perpetuated a lot of division and competition among humankind and justified control, justified hierarchies, because if there's a scarcity of resources, then we need somebody to control and manage how how we distribute and use these resources.
1: Absolutely. I think that scarcity is 100% a human construct and it's a very unevolved <laughs> way of being in the world actually you know we again we think as humans that we're like at the top of the food chain and that we are that we operate with the with the highest intelligence on the planet but the fact of the matter is is other species do not interact with their environment as if there will be nothing especially when there's an abundance of a particular thing and so i i think that Your question also gets me gets at another um, another set of concerns that I often think about. Is what do alternative economies look like? Because alternative economies, or you know, future economies that are not dependent on resource extraction, I think are really our only way to move into a different way of being with the world, or at least a um, a huge part of moving into a different way of being in the world. And so. My hope is that we can start really thinking about because we can start really thinking about alternative economies that do not take scarcity as a given in hopes of avoiding that policing around resources, around wealth that we have right now, that many people think it are, is justified, right? It's part of the reason why we have banks part of the reason why currency moves the the way that it does it's even part of the reason why we have like literally the actual police force right Mm. to protect property
0: (laughs) so because we're so locked into this current system right now we're in this coronavirus pandemic where it's become quite clear that this system is failing us But people are so stuck on saving the system and keeping it going that, you know, governments are pumping trillions of dollars into the economy. And what's being said is, you know, people have to keep consuming things that they don't they don't need in order to uphold this current system. So it's becoming clear that we this current system isn't working. And yet, we're so stuck on trying to do everything that we can to save it. So I guess my question is, how do we How do we move past this this deep desire to want to save this thing that isn't working? How do we move Mm -hmm. beyond this psychologically to be able to rebuild something that is totally different, but that really works out better for our humanity and for the earth?
1: Yeah. So for me, it's about thinking about the people who were never invested in the system (laughs) and who were able to move in ways that allowed them to survive these systems, but always did things either a little or a lot against the grain. And when you think about all of their, all of the ways that they did those things together, a, a map starts to form and it's hazy, right? But every time we think about, every time we meditate on the intention of, hmm, this person did it a little bit against the grain or again, a lot of it against the grain and they did it in this way. So for me, that's, Black women and black feminist thinkers and writers, right? And a lot of people who this particular world considers disenfranchised. And by no means am I romanticizing some of the challenges that come from being a black woman in the society, or being a person of color in the society, or being a black trans woman in the society, for example, or a sex worker in the society. However, a lot of the ways that people who are meant to be harmed by the, um, these present systems in order to keep it running have also lived in abundant ways that pointed to alternatives. And so I really turn to them to think about how to outline something that will come after this deeply unsustainable system. It doesn't matter how, much, how many arbitrary dollars and numbers are moved around in order to save the economy as, it, as we make sense of it right now all of the cracks and fissures in it will continue to become more and more apparent to more and more people. And we have been experiencing cracks in in this system that people are so interested in saving and are so convinced that it's so solid for many, many, many years, if if not centuries. And so it's bound to fail. (laughs) It's bound to fail. And many of the people who made abundant life in spite of living in its failure, are the people who I turn to, to think about how to live after this and to and to leave breadcrumbs for my descendants who will be the ones who will be building that world, you know, in an even more immediate way than than I am.
0: And transitions are never easy. Um, There's always going to (laughs) be suffering along that process. But I do feel like the earlier we do it, we might be able to buffer or lighten some of those harms compared to continuing to inflate artificially inflate the system that is not working and have it completely collapse one day.
1: We'll see, time will tell, you know. Um I I think a lot of people are sort of worried about the apocalypse and you have people like panic buying and hoarding and doing a lot of these things like getting ready for the quote end, but Octavia Butler was a genius and a prophet. And one of the things that she told us is that the collapse of society was going to was going to be a slow burn. Mm -hmm. It was not going to be it wasn't going to be cataclysmic. And then what she did in the Parable of the Sower series was give us a very detailed picture of what that decline was going to look like and how and how it was going to move. And what you know, she gave us a picture of what it was going to look like at the end of it, but also sort of making very clear, like, this was not a, an apocalyptic event that led us here this was not a grand collapse this was public programs being you know defunded this was the police being exposed for um a kind of like <laughs> government funded militia that they are this was this was this was the our water supply just being increasingly destroyed so much so that water becomes you know this highly contentious resource that flows freely from our faucets right now it's going to happen the the likely thing is that the collapse of our current systems are going to continue happening happening slowly through situations like this you know this pandemic and then and then the federal you know response to it right. <laughs> you know After this is over, there will be just like there they're just this like there have been breaches in our economic and political system prior to this moment. Really important things. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, the 2008 stock market crash was 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 something that people are still recovering from and something that people won't ever. Some families won't ever recover from whatever recovery means under this particular system. And so more and more cracks will continue to happen. I think that it's our responsibility as people who are interested in moving intentionally into another world as opposed to a, a new world kind of happening to you uh, mm-hmm. is, to take, is, to, is to pay attention to what these these cracks are leaving open to create, right? This is really a time about creation. Um, this is not a time about coping and hoping things that get back together. This is a time of resting abundantly. and And once you're rested, getting to work, creating something new, new systems, new ways of being.
0: So as we look to our future, if our dominant culture centered Black and Indigenous voices and perspectives and solutions Mm -hmm. in the field of sustainability, and also just for this new economy that we need, or this alternative that we need, how do you think that might change our current approach to addressing our ecological breakdown and how we're going about saving the economy?
1: It would change absolutely everything. Everything... If Black and Indigenous voices were centered in those conversations and they were not centered as a result of their being complicit in a larger kind of like (laughs) white liberal mission, if they actually were centered, everything that we know would be unrecognizable. Mm. I mean, because everything right now, including our solution, our quote unquote solutions to these problems are geared toward perpetuating a particular colonial earth ethic that supports one way of being in the world, right? So if you centered other voices and you didn't do it in a performative way, the world that we currently live in would be unrecognizable. It would be a, would be a new world. It would be the next evolutionary step. And again, this doesn't mean that every single Black person and every single Indigenous person, and I don't think that you're saying this at all, but just sort of to to be even clearer, you know, it doesn't mean that just, oh, find a black person, give them a voice, you know? It means that there are ways of being historically rooted in black and indigenous cultural practices that can lead, that can give us better insights into being harmonial with the environment in ways that a colonial earth ethic and liberal white environmentalism has could never do, right? And so, yeah, I mean, it <laughs> to put it simply, it would just be a, a completely unrecognizable world. Trying to find a
0: way back home Come too far to go alone And I know that I won't rest Till the bias is confessed And yet the threat still remains in place It's a violence that blights the human
1: Can I hold you, can I take your hand While we rise up together and make our stand In
0: this moment And as we're wrapping up our discussion, I'd love for you to share whatever else you feel is important to get across to our listeners that I didn't get to ask you about, as well as your general cause to action for them and how they can support your work.
1: I'm an English teacher at heart and a writer. And so one of the most transformative things that people can do is to continue reading and continue really understanding alternative ways of being in the world. And even if there's no green in the title, no environment in the title, no ecological in the title, or anything like that, even if it's not considered a quote environmental text, just expanding yourself is one of the ways to really deepen into your relationship with the world because you'll have an expanded understanding of your place in the world, right? So I just I just always encourage people to keep reading and keep writing. However, (laughs) when it comes to people who are aware that our current system is not working, that our current practices are not working. And that even if, and a lot of people can are, are even like the beneficiaries of all of the ways that this system works. And they can even see like, this isn't working. This is not sustainable, right? Reading is only going to take us so far. There, ha- It has to be accompanied by some action. And so when it comes to people who are interested in wealth redistribution, Find the organizations, find the Black and Indigenous-led organizations in your corner of the world, and fund them. You don't need to go in and tell them anything. <laughs> you don't need to go to them trying to educate anything or anything like that. Most, if you have the resources and you're trying to be a part of something different and something new, and being a part of the le- the next evolutionary step of our world that does not rely on the exploitation of Black and Brown people go and fund the institution's practices and movements that have been doing that work, right? Because none of this is new, you know? Um, alternative world building, alternative, uh, like none of that is new. So I just want people to know that part of the only way to really ensure that that's going to happen, you can read all the books in the world, but if you're sitting on the resources, it's really time to thinking about how, and what ways you can redistribute those resources. And finally, Because, as we've sort of been talking about in this podcast, the people who will lead us out of this ecological mess is going to be the Black and Indigenous collectives and communities that have been doing the work and been spearheading this conversation. And so, one of the best, and they are often at risk of some type of violence, whether it's a slower violence or a more immediate violence. And so, one of the best things that you can do is figure out ways. To literally physically protect a lot of our future and present leaders, right? And that again can go back to resource distribution. And sometimes, as we can see in a lot of the protests that have been happening all over the world, it literally means people of privilege, which is often white people, standing in harm's way, standing in front of Black and Indigenous people who are putting their lives on the line in order to ensure and raise awareness around this new world that absolutely needs to happen. And so, those are. Those are the biggest things. Keep reading, keep writing, figure out how to distribute resources to the people who need them, who will lead us and figure out how to protect at all costs the people who will continue to lead us. Uh, and um, one of the ways that I have been in my own work opening up pathways for that is to allow people to, to fund particular sessions that I do within my organization, Ask and Amazon. Right. So I'm I'm so happy that we get sponsors who are like, OK, you provide mentorship to people who might be experiencing financial hardship. And I know your platform is geared specifically toward helping um, disenfranchised folks that come from a particular socioeconomic background or um, particular racial race and ethnic background or gender background, whatever. And so that's one of the ways that I've seen my own community show up in terms of um you know, resource redistribution and protecting, protecting students, you know, again, our future leaders from, from the harm that can and most often does come their way at some point during their journey. So those are, those are the things that I've been thinking about in terms of call to action.
0: Mm. Well, Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Dr. Frazier's work, you can head to askanamazon.co and find Ask an Amazon on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Ask an Amazon. Dr. Frazier is also on Patreon at Black Feminist Ecology Project and on Instagram and Twitter herself at Amazon underscore Scholar. Dr. Frazier, thank you so much for joining me on this um, podcast today. It's been incredible. We covered so much and there's so much for us to reflect on after this conversation. So we're so grateful. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers?
1: Mm, I mean, I just, I really appreciate the work that you're doing and, you know, the title of your podcast, as soon as I received the notification that we might be having a conversation together. It made me think of the Zora Neale Hurston quote, the dream is the truth. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to encourage all of your listeners to keep that in mind that there's nothing arbitrary about dreaming and just continuing to trust that the things that we dream when we're awake (laughs) and when we're sleeping can really lead us to better worlds.
0: This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To help us keep this show alive and reciprocate support for our work, you can head to greendreamer.com support. We also dearly appreciate the five-star reviews and whenever you get to share your favorite episodes with friends. We also want to thank our partnership with Caliapeya Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Power to Change by Luna Beck. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gan. Our transcripts are edited by Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Shane. Take care and I'll catch you soon in the next episode.